great to see you, Purpose Church Online. Good to be together. I'm so glad you've joined us. Today, we're going to continue our study, Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes of Luke. And this week, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. And the title of today's study is, What Happens When the King Returns? Now, Jesus used all kinds of examples to teach truth. He used examples uh, from the Old Testament, from nature, from relationships. And here he's going to use an example from history. We pick it up now with verse 11. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Right then, Jesus was going to take over, conquer the Romans, and he was going to rule the whole world at that moment uh, from Jerusalem. So the nation of Israel was excited about that. While uh, he said a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minas. That is one mina per uh, servant. A mina was a denomination of currency back then, like our dollar is today. That's what it would be in Israel at that time. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. So as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, rumors began to circulate. He's going to overthrow Rome. And so to silence these dangerous ideas, he gave them this parable. Uh, he would one day establish his kingdom, but he would first have to go away and come back before he did that. And the story Jesus tells about the nobleman was not really new to the Jewish people. They would immediately pick up on what he was talking about. They had seen the same plot happen years before by one of the sons of Herod the Great, uh, Herod Archelaus. So here's Herod the Great. Here's his son, Herod Archelaus. Herod the Great left part of his kingdom to Archelaus. Uh, but the will to leave that to his son, part of the kingdom, had to be ratified by Rome. Now, the people hated Archelaus because even though he had promised to be kinder to them than his father, he had turned out to be just as bad. And so a delegation of Jewish leaders actually went to Rome, just like in this story that Jesus is telling, to protest the approval. But Caesar Augustus um, ratified the appointment anyway, and Archelaus became tetrarch, not king, but tetrarch. Hold on to that thought. It's going to be meaningful at the very end of this message. So he made him a tetrarch, but he didn't make him a king of Judea and Samaria. So over uh, all of this uh, area right here, Samaria and Judea, he was the tetrarch. Archelaus was the tetrarch over that area. Now, when the new ruler, Archelaus, got home from Rome, he rewarded his faithful followers but punished the citizens who had opposed him. Now, of course, Jesus didn't tell this story for political reasons, and he's, of course, nothing like Herod Archelaus, but he was using the familiar to teach the unfamiliar. That was the style of Jesus. Take something familiar, build on that to teach the unfamiliar. Uh, Christ, in this story, is the nobleman. Uh, he did not purchase his kingdom by force, but by his death on the cross. And after his resurrection, he went back to heaven to receive his kingdom and one day he's going to come back to earth to establish his kingdom and to rule as king of kings. And you and I are living 
in this time period between his ascension, when he went back to heaven, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, we're living in the in-between time between the ascension and his return, and he's given us a job to do. He's given you a job to do and me a job to do. Everybody who's a follower of him, he's given us a job to do. We don't know when he'll return, but when he does, he's going to deal with three kinds of people found in this story, in this parable. The faithful servants, the unfaithful servant, and the rebellious citizens. So let's start with the faithful uh, servants, uh, going to verse 15 now. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money uh, before, in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities in his kingdom. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. Uh, his master answered, you take charge of five cities. Now, this is a really important point. The, this parable is not about salvation. It's not about earning our salvation through faithfulness. It is it's not about salvation, about earning our salvation, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anybody should boast. It's not about salvation, but it's about service. And the reward that Jesus will give us that follow him for that service. Now, we believe that nine out of the ten servants uh, were faithful. And here's what we know about these nine uh, faithful servants. Number one, they knew their responsibility. Now, they were given the same amount of money to work with. Each was given one mina. Now, this is um, so helpful. And I have to admit, I really enjoyed studying this because the more famous of these, there's another one called the parable of the talents or the bags of gold uh, told by Matthew. And that's the more famous of these somewhat similar uh, stories. But there are interesting details. This one we don't talk about all that much. I don't know that I've ever preached on it or heard a sermon on it. You always hear parable of the talents from Matthew chapter 25, but you don't hear as much about this one. And there's some interesting details that Jesus uh, decided to tell the story differently uh, here that Luke records later on in his ministry from what he told in Matthew. Uh, even though both of these uh, stories, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke, they both talk about faithfulness. So that's a subject for both of them, but they have some interesting um, details. Uh, in this one, they're all given the same amount, each one mina. But in the one in Matthew, there are three servants. There are not 10, there are three and they're all, the three of them are given three different amounts based on their abilities. So based on uh, the, their abilities, their, their giftedness, they were given three different amounts uh, to deal with. But this is different. All ten given the same. Back in the one in Matthew, they're given large amounts of money. I mean, depending on how we figure it out in today's currency, the first one in Matthew is given like the equivalent of $3 million dollars. The second is given the equivalent of $1.2 million, and the third is given the equivalent of $600,000, so large amounts. But in this parable, this story that we're looking at today, each of the 10 are given one mina, which is about $8,000, so much smaller amount. 
Uh, so what does the mina represent? And this is something that Bible scholars uh, wrestle with. Well, here, here's what I believe, and some Bible scholars believe, and here, here's what I personally believe. It's something, because they all got the same thing, not different amounts based on their abilities. It's something that all of God's servants, all the followers of Jesus, we all possess. So what we believe it is, is this mina represents the gospel. Uh, Christ has given us the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus. And he's equally given the equal, the gospel to each one of us to share the good news of salvation about Jesus and to share it with others. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So what I believe this is here, this mina, is we're each entrusted with the gospel and we're to share that. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, but we have this treasure, the gospel, the good news of Jesus in jars of clay. Uh, boy, and on all of our weakness, jars of clay, nothing fancy, common, jars of clay. We've got this treasure in a jaw of clay. Boy, does that describe us? This precious gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's carried by ordinary people like you and like me in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, and it's not from us. Now, there are only two things that you can't do in heaven. You can't sin and you can't invite people to join you there. Only two things you can't do in heaven. You, no longer you'll be able to sin. Won't that be great? And, but, and you, but you also won't be able to invite others to join you there. Once we're there, the time of invitation is over. Uh, you can do everything better in heaven except for, except for one thing. You can work better in heaven. You can worship better in heaven. Our relationships will be more fulfilling and better in heaven. Everything is going to be better in heaven. We can do everything better except to share the gospel. That's the thing we can no longer do in heaven. So doesn't it make sense to devote ourselves to the one thing we can do better here than there? Doesn't it make sense to spend our our, 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 our finances and our energy and our abilities and, and our passion on the one thing we can do here that we can't, we can no longer do there, and that's invite others to join us there. We uh, Here at Purpose Church, we call it our oikos, the Greek word for household. Uh, the 8 to 15 in your sphere of influence, people you work with, go to school with, in your neighborhood, in your family, uh, those 8 to 15 that you're closest to, you have most influence with in, in your life. And God's assignment to each one of us uh, as he's gone back to heaven and he says, put this to work until I come back again. Uh, the assignment he's given us is to go to heaven and to bring our oikos with us to heaven. That's the, that's the one thing we're supposed to do. A lot of other things we can do, but that's the one thing that we need to make sure that we do. That's why the next 21 days are so important. Next 21 days, just so strategic. We've got this golden, I call it a hat trick. Uh, for you hockey fans, it's a, a hat trick. That's three of anything uh, that converge. Three, three things that converge to make the next 21 days maybe the best three weeks 
of your whole life, of my whole life, for inviting people to be a church on Easter Sunday. And I promise you, if you invite somebody from your oikos here on Easter Sunday, I will share the gospel with them. I, I promise you that. You say, what are those three things, Glenn, that can converge to make this such an ideal opportunity? Well, first of all, Easter. Easter, best day of the year to invite somebody to, to join you in church. Number two, the opening of our new worship center. It's going to be on Easter Sunday. And so there's a curiosity, excitement factor to go with that. And then number three, got a new one to announce to you now. Uh, brand new. You're hearing it for the first time. Kevin Nickerson, who's the chaplain for the Rams. He spoke at our men's event last weekend. And we asked him, are you available on uh, Easter Sunday? He said, yes, he is. So here he is uh, kneeling and praying with some NFL players uh, after a game. And Kevin Nickerson, he's going to be here as a special guest. I'll be preaching the sermon, but we'll have an interview with him as part of that message. And um, I want to ask you a question. Anybody in your oikos that likes the Rams, world champions, the brand new, do they like football? Brand new chaplain for the world champion, Los Angeles Rams. So those three coming together, uh, Kevin Nickerson here, along with Easter Sunday, along with the brand new opening of our new worship center, it's going to be a great opportunity. And then number two about the faithful servants, they did their job faithfully. I mean, they could have excused themselves in many different ways. They could have said, well, this is not a great sum of money. You know, it's just not worth it. Why, why bother with this? It's not, it's not that great of an amount of money. It's only $8,000. I've actually seen some Bible scholars that believe Amina could have been as little as $500. I even heard one Bible commentary thought that it might be as little as $20. Okay, what's a $20 bill? Uh, it's not $3 million like the guy in the parable of the bags of gold over in Matthew. Don't minimize your purpose. Don't say, it's not that great. The assignment God has given to me, it's not that important. It's not that great. Don't, don't any of us dare minimize our purpose. Everybody has been given an equal mina, an assignment from God. And if we don't fulfill that assignment, his master plan for the universe, his master plan for world history will not be accomplished. You've been entrusted with sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing is more precious than that. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Uh, the servants could have said, well, what will I get out of it? You know, what, what's in it for me? I understand the, the master wants me to do this, but what's in it for me? You know, the, when this nobleman goes away, he never mentions a reward, but there was one in the end. Doesn't talk about it, but there is. Uh, we ought to be faithful simply out of gratitude and because Christ commanded it. That ought to be enough, what he did for us on the cross. But you know, the Bible talks a lot about the tremendous reward that Christ will give us. Uh, and, and I think he gives it to us because we need that encouragement. It ought to be enough just because we love him. But when the times are tough, sometimes it's okay to just think about the reward. And so the Bible talks a lot about the, re, the reward that's going to be for those that are faithful uh, to Christ. Um, another excuse they could have used is, how do I know he'll ever come back? I mean, he may not come back. So why work so hard when he might not come back after all? And the same temptation is, is, is there for us today. Peter predicted this 2,000 years ago. 
He said in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, above all, you must understand that in the last days, that's what we're in right now, I believe, scoffers will come. Oh boy, they're there, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, the second coming, Jesus coming back again, uh, that he, Jesus, promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget, as an act of their will, they choose to not follow the evidence that there's a God, not follow the evidence that the Bible is God's word, not follow the evidence of fulfilled prophecy and the evidence for the resurrection and the uh, authority of scripture and the supernatural nature of the Bible and the historicity and the archeological background. They, they deliberately choose not to follow the evidence. They forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. This has happened before with Noah. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are, are like a day. I mean, by God's reckoning, Jesus has only been gone a couple of days. It's less time than between the crucifixion and the resurrection. He's only been gone a couple of days. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He might just be waiting for the next 21 days to give us one more chance. Maybe he'll come the day after Easter Sunday. Maybe he'll come, come back Easter Sunday night and he's given us just 21 more days to rescue our friends and our family members and our neighbors and, and our friends and, and invite them to, to come to church on Easter Sunday and to hear the gospel and to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and to join you in heaven when Jesus returns. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? What kind of person should I be? What kind of person should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And then the third thing about these faithful servants is they were rewarded for their faithfulness. Now, God gives each of us different abilities and different opportunities, and he doesn't ask us to produce the same results, but he does ask us all to be faithful and to do our best. What, what Jesus teaches us in this parable is that the reward for faithful work is more work. When we're faithful in little things, he gives us bigger things to be faithful about, and an increased capacity to serve the Lord. If we faithfully use the little that he gives us, he'll give us more. Now, it's interesting in this parable, he, he puts them in charge of cities. What, what's that all about? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, here in this life, these cities, I believe, mean greater capacity for ministry and greater opportunities uh, for service. 
Uh, in a moment, we're going to see that the mina was taken away from the unfaithful servant and given to the, the servant who already had 10 minas. And so when we're, we're faithful with what God gives us, he gives us more to be faithful over. Uh, what we don't use, we may lose. And what we faithfully use proves that we can be trusted with even more. David was faithful, taking care of his father's sheep. So God was able to entrust the nation of Israel to his care. Joshua was faithful as, as Sir Moses' servant, right-hand man. And God eventually made Joshua to be Moses' successor. Timothy, when he was a young adult, assisted Paul in his ministry. And in a few years, he was called to take uh, Paul's place of leadership among the churches. And so it's talking about in this life, we get even more opportunities to serve God. But then there's an eternal component to it. In eternity, I believe when he gives 10 cities to one and five cities to another, and if the unfaithful servant had been faithful, he would have given him a, 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 a city to be in charge of. Well, that, I believe there's a hint of eternity there. I, I believe that there's a, I'm, I'm, I don't, I can't really support this fully by scripture. There's some conjecture going on here. But, you know, I've told you my dream of heaven. My dream of heaven is that it's going to be a giant Star Trek episode. And we're just going to be tooling around space. And, and maybe he talks about this parable giving charge over cities. Maybe he'll give us charge over solar systems, over, over galaxies. And we'll spend all of eternity just exploring those galaxies and, uh, and managing them and, and, and leading them based on our faithfulness. By the way, just so you'll recognize me in heaven, uh, this is the uniform uh, that I'm going to be wearing in heaven, just so you will recognize me there. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said, not the maker of plans and promises, but rather the one who offers faithful service in small matters. This is the person who is most likely to achieve what is good and lasting. Don Cousins, who's the uh, father of Kirk Cousins, who's the quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. He said, the aim and the result of faithful, fruitful, and fulfilling service is to make God famous. Mother Teresa said, faith in action is love, and love in action is service. By transforming that faith into living acts of love, we put ourselves in contact with God himself, with Jesus our Lord. Let me tell you how you as a church have been doing this. In your regular giving through Purpose Church, uh, you have given for years to our partners in Latvia and Lithuania who are now ministering to and housing refugees from Ukraine. Uh, they're working with the, these people, these pastors and leaders and churches that you've been supporting for years as a church. They've been working with war orphans and transporting refugees from the border doing trauma counseling, connecting refugees with more permanent housing and jobs and, and a lot more that goes in, in, with engaging with broken people. Um, through the years, you've given thousands upon thousands of boxes uh, to Samaritan's Purse through Operation Christmas Child each year. And uh, Samaritan's Purse now is working directly with the churches of Operation Christmas Child in the Ukraine in order to distribute aid. And then over the past couple of weeks, you've given $14,000 over and above your regular giving to the people of the Ukraine. 
Well, now we come after the faithful nine of the ten servants. We come to the unfaithful servant in verse 20. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Well, why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? That's the least he could have done. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Sir, they said, he already has 10. But Jesus replied, he replied, in the story, and Jesus will reply, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. This unfaithful servant, number one, he knew his job, but he did not do it. And we know that we're supposed to do what we can to expand the gospel, to share the gospel with others. And many times, I don't do it. We don't do it. Number two, he was unfaithful because his heart was not right with his master. Warren Wiersbe writes, the servant did not love his master, he feared him. There is a proper fear of the Lord, but it is not a fear that paralyzes us. Rather, it mobilizes us to serve him. This man was so afraid of life, he would take no risks. He was convinced that his master was a mean, selfish man who would not reward him anyway. Uh, Jesus is not a tyrant to serve and to follow. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. He's not a, a tyrant as our leader, as we follow him, as, as our master, as, as his servants. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 1 John 5, 3. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They're not a burdensome to keep. They are the pathway. His commands are the pathway to blessedness within our lives. And then number three, his unfaithfulness cost him his reward. He lost his opportunity to serve more. I mean, the point of this parable is the future is today. What we do with today determines what will be done with us tomorrow. It determines our reward and our opportunity for tomorrow, what we do today. He lost his mina. Uh, the biblical principle is that what we do not lose, use, what we do not use uh, we may lose. Um, with the gifts God gives to us, use it or lose it. But what we gain will gain us even more. He lost his reward. Second uh, John 1, verse 8. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Revelation 22, verse 12. Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. 
Uh, Pastor Eric and I are working on a, a series that we hope to do this summer on the book of Revelation. We're hoping to do the whole summer um, through Revelation if, if the Lord continues to lead us in that direction. So Pastor Eric um, Holmstrom and I have been, have been working on this together. And he sent me this quote <laughs> a couple of days ago that I thought was fantastic. Uh, not just because it was from a fellow Virginian. This is Matt, uh, Matt Smethurst. And he's the lead pastor of River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia, right near where I grew up. He said, God did not give us the book of Revelation, so we build bomb shelters in the backyard. <laughs> he gave us this book, so we build bigger dinner tables and invite our friends over and tell them about Jesus. And then the sad ending to this story talks about the rebellious citizens, the ones that rebel against Jesus. We, we learned about him uh, before he left, uh, before he went in verse 14. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our, our king. And despite all the evidence, despite Jesus laying down his life on the cross, there are still those that say to Jesus, I do, do not want you to be my king. Most important decision you'll ever make in life is what will you do with Jesus? And right now, in the quietness of this moment, you could just simply say to Jesus, I want you to be my king. I, I, you are my Lord. I believe you rose from the dead. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus rose from the dead and, and we follow him as Lord, we'll be saved, we'll be ready when he returns, but there are still people that say, we don't want him to be our king, and this will be their destiny. Verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Now, that's not what Jesus wants. He will do that if people refuse to kneel to him and make him their Lord and their king. He will do it, but that, that is not his desire. That is not his plan A. Right before this, this parable that we've been looking at, verse 10 of chapter 19, for the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. But if people refuse to acknowledge his kingship, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 8, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Peter said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Romans 5, verse 10, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, he, he looked out at his enemies as he was being crucified, and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And, and for those that call on his name, even when we were enemies of his, he will forgive us. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You know, Augustus Caesar never did give Archelaus the title of king. Remember that? I said that earlier. He got the title of Tetrarch, but he never got the title of king, but Jesus Christ is the king of kings. Revelation 19, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, 
He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we are to proclaim him and we are to serve him until he returns. And all the followers of Jesus said, along with me, right where you are, there in your living room, um, on your computer, listening later on, and all the followers of Jesus said, if you agree with me, say amen and amen.